In this session, we're going to look at how we can know that what we're dealing with is abuse. I got some clicker lessons from Stephen. Yep, he said, just press hard on it, Mom. Apparently, he dropped it a few times, and <laughs> you didn't. He, uh, he said it. <laughs> he said it, so I'm not really blaming him. I'm just assigning him the accountability he accepted. <laughs> I had a lot of years of mom training. All right, Vanessa, thank you for this wonderful bomb that I'm sucking on in my mouth here. This thing is amazing. <clears throat> hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this blue thing. She, uh, we discussed taking the, the, red, the red one, which, yeah, that, but we decided that one might make my whole face leak. So we stuck with just the blue ones. All right, how do I know that what I'm dealing with is abuse? Sorry, I do digress. So just to kind of remind you, from the last session, remember that you have to take all claims of abuse seriously, right? Your counselee is going to be watching you very intently as she is giving you her story. She is going to be gauging your responses, your reception to what it is that she's telling you about her marriage and about her home life and how you react, that what we call halo data, Right? If, you're, if she's telling you something and you're looking at her like, okay, that's not confidence instilling. And if she's telling you something and you're sitting back in your chair going, mm-hmm, okay, that's also not confidence instilling. Right? So you want to make sure that when you are listening, that you, are, you, you just try to be as engaged as you can possibly be. Scripture tells us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And a woman who comes to confide abuse to you, she is in mourning for many things. She has realized things or is in the process of realizing things or someone has told her things about her life that she never understood were reality. She may be mourning the loss of the marriage that she wanted or thought she had. And th there are just a whole system of things that start to occur when a woman begins to recognize that what she's living with is abusive behavior. And we have an obligation, excuse me, to respond to her in a way that is loving and Christ-like. So you want to watch your halo data. Don't be fake or phony, but just put on that compassionate heart of Jesus. Remember, too, that as Christians, and if you are a biblical counselor, you have an obligation to protect a victim of abuse and to ensure their safety. Okay? When there are children involved, especially we have got to make sure that we are, to the best of our ability, not returning people home to an environment in which uh, active abuse is taking place.
But again, we also have a responsibility to ensure that someone is not being falsely accused. Now, I know that there are people out there who say you always believe the victim. Okay, I am not disputing that the person coming with complaints must be heard. However, if I can just speak candidly and freely for a moment, there is just so much information out there right now. There are so many sources out there about domestic abuse, some good, most not so good, that we must be highly discerning. Okay, I get the sense that when it comes to the topic of abuse, this is just like a hair trigger, and people, in their zeal to protect women, I believe that some in the abuse recovery culture have created this mindset that all men are automatically guilty when they are accused. Doesn't matter what the wife says or does to him, he is just guilty because she says he abused her. And my friends, we all know that that is not always the case, right? I'm certainly not disputing cases where, you know, it's abuse. We know it's abuse. The constellation of behaviors is there. But we cannot adopt this attitude that all men are guilty just because they're men. Okay? It's very important that we don't label every harmful or hurtful interaction as abuse. So, remember that what we are looking for in an, an abuse situation is a constellation of behaviors. We are looking for patterns of behavior, right? Patterns that are intended to gain or maintain coercive power and control over a spouse. Um, I think um, I sent an extra sheet that was supposed to be for this, the, the ARI. Did that go in everybody's binders or did it just go in ladies' binders? Do you have something in your binder called the ARI, Abuse Risk Inventory? It's a bunch of questions. Inventory, yes. Oh, oh no, there's, n there's no list? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? They, they don't need it immediately. I can just talk about it, okay? Um, something that I have for you is a tool that we use at Raining Grace to determine if abusive behaviors are taking place. And it's called the ARI, or the Abuse Risk Inventory. And it's 51 questions that we ask uh, someone, a woman or a man, when they come and say that they are being abused at home. Now, what we have learned is that we will gain very valuable insights from the comments and the stories that the women tell us, in my case, it's the women, um, when, when they are talking to us about what's going on at home. So the way that the ARI is set up to work is it's 1 to 51, and they're just questions that, that are um, indicators of problematic behaviors, 
okay? And so what we used to do is we would just give her the ARI and tell her to indicate all the ones that were affirmative, okay? Just put a circle or a check mark by all the ones that are happening in your life. And then we would step out of the room for five or 10 minutes and give her a chance to fill this thing out. Well, what we learned is that we get a whole lot more information when we sit with the counselee and we go through each question with them and they tell us the story that's connected with their answer. And then we can make notes right on the ARI that will help the counselee if she ever has to go to court to get a restraining order or anything like that. Okay, because it's documentation of behaviors. Okay, we record the number of yeses on the ARI, but they alone do not determine if abuse is taking place in the home. It's just one tool that we use in the evaluation process to determine, you know, what's happening. And we take that in combination with the counselee's disclosures, the history that she tells us, what the effects are on her from living with her husband or her significant other with the way that she's being treated. Now, at Reigning Grace, women counsel women and men counsel men. We do not cross counsel, okay? So I will never counsel an abused man. All right, I will counsel his abusive wife. But um, we work, the two counselors work together all the time. We work together very closely so that we can provide the best kind of services to our counselees. So when I am done with the ARI from my victim wife, I will give it to Bill or I will give it to Matthew or I will give it to whoever the man is on the staff at my office so that he can use the ARI um, with the husband who is being accused. And it helps them to learn if there are patterns of coercive power and control that are happening. And what behaviors are there that we need to consider, you know, marking them out for repentance. However, it's really important that you understand that the accused person will lie. They're going to lie. They're going to minimize their behavior. They're going to blame their spouse. They're going to rationalize. They're going to justify. And they're going to um, just try and convince you uh, that what you're seeing and hearing and what you've been told isn't true when they're confronted with their behaviors. Usually what we have is the the guy um, will use just generalizations, you know, like, um, have you, um, do you block her way when she's trying to leave the room? Well, like maybe once or, you know, like if, uh, if I think she's like out of control, then I, I might like block the way so she can't go and hurt herself. Okay. That's a rationalization and a justification of a behavior that's on the ARI. If she indicates that she never has any discretionary funds. To, she has no money to spend outside of whatever he gives her for groceries. And she has to bring back a receipt and every single penny that um, she got in change. Okay, so if we ask the husband, does your, does your wife have any control over the finances? Mm, well, 
Sometimes. Well, what does sometimes mean? Well, you know, like, I give her money when she goes to the store. Well, is she allowed any other money? Well, what would she need money for? I take care of her. Well, does she have any money for discretionary spending? Well, why would she need that? Can she buy herself something without your approval? Well, I don't know. Why are you asking me this? What did she say to you? Okay, so they're, they're cagey when you're trying to ask them questions. What we get with the ARI is we get concrete answers. It provides specificity in concrete statements. Um, and we can use those statements then to urge the counselee to repent and to change. Now, another tool that some people still use is called the cycle of abuse. Um, some domestic violence counselors use it to describe a pattern of, or a repetitive cycle of behaviors um, that the abuser progresses through, okay? Typically, they say there is like a build-up phase, okay, tension-building phase, and then there's the explosion or the blow-up phase, then there's the honeymoon phase or um, the... Uh, um, What's another word for the honeymoon phase? Um, like the reconciliation phase, where they're trying to make everything great. This is where he'll buy her flowers and take her out for dinner and clean the house and tell her how wonderful she is. And all that does is make her think she's more crazy than he tells her she is because just, you know, yesterday he was screaming in her face and pushing her and telling her she was useless and good for nothing. And today he's buying her flowers and telling her he didn't mean it and he's cleaning the house and telling her he'll get more help. Okay, so the problem with this particular cycle of abuse is that, first of all, these behaviors, if they're uninterrupted, they will escalate. Whether or not you use something like a cycle or not, all right, these behaviors occur whether they occur in this particular order, not necessarily. The, uh, an abusive person can go through all of these phases in an hour, and they can do it multiple times a day. Okay, so that's one of the reasons that this is not really so much in favor anymore. And another thing is that this has actually been used to blame the victim for not leaving. Okay, it's like, well, why didn't you leave in the honeymoon phase? When you saw tension was starting to build, why didn't you get out of there? Like, it's her fault, okay? So um, the abuser's actions are not always as predictable as, a, as this cycle makes it look. The preferred um, method or the, the preferred tool, I should say, for describing the core tactic of abuse is the power and control wheel. Now, this tool is used by secular Christian, and most recently, some biblical counselors in um, domestic abuse counseling. At Reigning Grace, we find this tool to help define and identify many of the actions and behaviors of the abuser. You should know that <clears throat> this was developed in 1984 by the staff at the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project. 
This wheel is used in secular counseling to help women identify the actions used against them by their abuser. This wheel is gender specific and it is intended to describe the actions and the tactics that men use against women. And what is on the wheel is not exhaustive. But what we find is it helps both the abuser and the victim understand the heart level motivations of some of the typical tactics that are used to gain and maintain ungodly power and control over another person. However, because we find that many of these behaviors are used by both women and men who abuse their spouses, we don't use this tool the way our secular counterparts do. When I meet with a woman, I don't bring this thing into the discussion until after I have gathered enough data to know that this stuff is present. Okay, she has to self-report these things to me before I will ever take this out because this is not a diagnostic tool the way that we use it. And we don't want it to be a diagnostic tool. We want it to be a confirming tool because remember, many of the women thinks that, think that they're crazy. They don't believe because they've been told that what they're experiencing isn't what they're experiencing. They've asked their husbands even, who are the ones using these behaviors against them, you know, you know in, a, in a good moment, okay? When you said this to me, what did you mean? Or, or did, you really, did you really mean that you would try and take the kids away from me? Do you really think I'm crazy? Okay, and the husband, because at this point it's in his, in his uh, nature, I'll put it that way, to be deceptive. At this point, all he's going to do is confuse her more, right? So we bring this out after she self-reports the kinds of things that are occurring that are on this wheel, and then we use it to help her understand what she has been experiencing and to realize that she's not alone, that the things that are happening to her are things that are very typical of a woman that is in an abused relationship. We recognize that what is on the wheel here, these are external actions and motives. However, what it does do, or what it doesn't do actually, is it gives no attention to the, to the heart attitudes that prompt all of these things. So, what I thought I would do for our time together here is I want to go through this power and control wheel with you. Uh-huh. Press hard, Mom. There we go. Okay, so we're going to just look at this wheel. We're going to look at the tactics that are typically used to gain and maintain power and control. The outer ring of the wheel um, can, contains sexual violence or physical violence. The internal or the hub of the wheel contains power and control. Now, abuse can begin with physical and or sexual violence, which is the outer rim of the wheel, which establishes immediate dominance over the other person. Sometimes only one act of physical or sexual violence is necessary to establish dominance and to instill fear that it can or might happen again. This is something that's often misunderstood when a woman goes for help. Okay, he isn't hitting her now, so what's going on isn't categorized as being abuse. It's minimized. Okay, no, 
the person who is listening to her story determines that, well, it's not this serious. It's not that serious right now because, you know, there's no physical violence and there's no sexual violence, but nothing could be further from the truth here. Other times, the tactics that are in the pie pieces that we're going to look at in a moment are used to establish and maintain that power and control that's at the center without any physical or sexual violence. But one thing is for sure, the tactics that are used by domestic abusers are painful and they're harmful to the victim. And they are always progressing and they are always changing as the victim adapts to them. Okay? So when it's presented as part of the history, physical violence needs to be explored in its entirety with both the victim and the abuser. Okay, physical violence, whether it's punching somebody or even pinching them or shoving them or just slapping them, right? All of these things are still considered to be acts of violence. And because men against weaker women most often use physical violence, the counselor has to inquire about the number of times that he used violence against her. Okay, the, the abuser has to be asked and the victim has to be asked. And they both need to be asked where on her body was she hit? Did he use an open hand or did he use a closed fist? Did he use a handheld instrument? Like, did he use a belt or a stick? I had a woman once that hit her husband with a bat, a baseball bat. Okay, you can be sure there was a lot of data that was gathered about that. Right? And then we have other situations where all that happens, all that happens, is he just blocks her way. She can't leave the room. Okay? She goes here, he goes here. She goes here, he goes here. And, the, and they play the you can't leave the room dance until I'm done talking to you. Okay? Those are the kind of things that escalate. You know what the number one thing is that causes physical violence now? Take a guess. Nope. Your cell phone. You have no idea how many physical altercations occur because somebody has a phone that the other person wants. Grabbing, lurching, trying to reach around, trying to dominate, trying to push, trying to grab. And a lot of times this is what escalates into the man grabbing her around the neck. Anytime a woman is grabbed around the neck, that is extremely serious. Anytime he puts his hands on her in this region right here, that is a very, very dangerous sign. Okay? This is lethality right here. So you have got to be aware of that. So you want to document all of these things on the abuser's end and on the other end. Oh, my goodness, I'm already way behind time here. Okay, um... What was the duration of the attack or attacks that occurred? Were the wife and children, um, were they all crying? Were they cowering? Were they hiding? Were they begging, Daddy, please stop. Daddy, please stop. Were they fainting? Were, they, was there, were people running away? Were they trying to run out of the house to get away? All of these things need to be documented, and they all need to be acknowledged by the abuser at some point in the counseling process. 
right? Psalm 32, 5 says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. My iniquity I did not hide. So they all have to be acknowledged to God and others. Now, one thing is for sure, the tactics that are used by domestic abusers are painful and they're harmful to the victim, and they will progress and change as the victim adapts. I can't say that enough. An emotionally abused woman might confide that her spouse typically wakes her up or keeps her up until the wee hours of the morning have the, having these endless circular discussions about her inadequacy about how the love she shows isn't adequate, how she doesn't pay him enough attention, how she isn't desiring him. You don't want me enough, baby. Okay, she doesn't show enough care and concern for him. And he has these endless badgering diatribes of her deficiencies and her failures to love him as he deserves or needs to be loved and desired by her. This is a no-win situation for the wife because a man like this is an emotional bottomless pit and there is nothing that she can say to convince him of her love for him. Um, every attempt to, that she makes to assure him of her love is only met with examples of how she fails at it. Okay, She could do it all perfectly and it still wouldn't be enough because this isn't about her, this is about him. Some husbands compare their wives to other women. They objectify their wives by groping them inappropriately, oogling them, fondling them in inappropriate times and places. This is body-focused and not person-focused. It is selfish. It is demeaning. And many women will report that they just feel like a piece of meat because he just is groping her constantly. If he views pornography, she may sheepishly tell me that uh, her husband makes demands for some unbiblical acts and he wants to introduce porn or has introduced porn into the marriage. Some husbands use scripture to manipulate their wives sexually using 1 Corinthians 7.4 and Ephesians, or not Ephesians 5.23, but um, 1 Corinthians um, 6.19. He will coerce his wife into providing him sex. And when he does this, he's not thinking of her. This is not intimacy, okay? This is, this is him objectifying and using her. He is just, you know, he's thinking of himself. He's not thinking of his wife. Sex is not a loving, intimate relationship. It's an arrogant expectation. And it's not at all the picture of intimacy as the spiritual one flesh union that God intends it to be, according to Ephesians 5.31, Consider a husband who tells his wife that if she doesn't give him sex, he's going to go commit adultery because he has to have his sex. And then he proceeds to blame her for what he says he will do if she doesn't capitulate to his demands. There's no mutuality here. There is nothing loving about it. It is selfish and unloving. In this case, he is using her as an object he is using her body for his selfish desires, and he doesn't care about her. I've had women that have had miscarriages. They have um, had to have a DNC, and the day that they come home from the hospital, the husband is demanding sex. Okay, that's not loving. That's cruel. It's brutal. Okay, when a woman just has a baby, right, her body is not ready for physical intimacy. 
when she's got five kids running around the house, all of them, you know, hanging on her clothes, and, and she has not one moment to herself, but her husband comes home from work at 5 o'clock, and he snaps his fingers and goes, in the bedroom now. Never mind the kids. I want it now, and you're going to give it to me. Okay? That's not loving. Or he calls her into the bedroom, and he's laying naked on the bed, and he says, do it. Okay, I'm sorry to be so graphic with you, but please understand that this is real life for many women who are abused sexually in their marriages. There's no tenderness. There's no love. There, there's nothing between this man and his wife other than he wants control of her body. He wants control of her person. He does not see her as someone created in the image and likeness of God. Some more of the commonly used tactics here uh, beyond the physical and the, and the sexual violence is using intimidation. This is a very common ta uh, tactic. Intimidation enables power and control or establishes power and control over the victim because those experiencing this kind of mistreatment are eventually convinced of their inadequacy. Okay, now intimidation often carries fewer legal consequences than physical violence. It is, however, a very, very effective and powerful tool in the hands of an abusive person. The victim feels afraid. Okay, they're afraid just of the looks, of the gestures, of the stance that the person takes, the volume of their voice, the tone of voice. All these things can be used to frighten and, and intimidate and control her. Okay, he doesn't even have to touch her. But instead, he can establish control just by being really large over her, right? Coming right up to her and just peering down at her and looking mean or, you know, just having a cocked fist or a, or a back-held hand ready to slap. He never has to touch her. This is intimidation, and it's very effective. One of the important questions that we ask a woman um, who denies being physically assaulted is, does he ever hurt the family pet? Okay. Men who abuse animals are going to abuse humans because it's, again, a power and control thing. I once had a case where the person, the husband who was the abuser, threatened to shoot the family dog because the wife was unhappy that he kicked the dog and she called him on it. So his answer to her concern about kicking the dog was, I'll just take it outside and shoot it. The guy also insisted on keeping his gun right on top of the refrigerator. Okay, this is also a tactic of intimidation. Brandishing weapons, threatening to get the gun out, waving it around, keeping it out and on display and visible, especially when he is angry. Another tactic is emotional abuse. Okay, these husbands demean their wives and they imply that they're failures as human beings. Proverbs 12, 18 says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, the wife will tell you that his words hurt, and they're intended to hurt her. Um, he wants to diminish her and demean her by the things that he says. He also might do what the wife calls playing mind games. 
Okay, her initial disclosure might be that her husband um, has told her she's crazy because she doesn't rem remember conversations or recall things, arguments, discussions, anything the way that he does. Okay, he might say to her that she just imagines something that she is sure that she said. How many of you are familiar with that old movie, Gaslight? Okay, if you've never seen that movie, it's an old black and white movie. You can see it on Turner Classic Movies or rent it for $2.99. Okay, get the moths out of the wallet and watch this movie. It's Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. And, it, you know, it's fictional, of course, but the movie is called Gaslight for a reason, okay? This whole movie is all full of, of this husband trying to convince his wife that she's crazy. He intimidates her. He messes with how she thinks to the point that she really believed that she was completely losing it. Um, he twisted her words, the things she did say, uh, into something that she didn't say and then told her that what he said she said was what she said, not what she really said. There's a lot of saids in there. <laughs> Sounds like Romans 7. I do what I don't do, the things I don't want to do. This Okay, but you, you get the idea, right? She might tell you that her husband gives her mixed messages. He tells her she doesn't make sense. And also because he keeps telling her she's crazy and she's the reason that their marriage is having problems, she no doesn't know what to believe anymore. She no longer knows what to believe. Her husband makes comments that cause her to become confused and to question her sanity, okay? So this whole idea of gaslighting is eroding the foundation of logic that she thinks upon, and gaslighting can be accomplished by, by charm. It can be accomplished by lies. It can be accomplished by manipulation to cause somebody to believe in an alternate reality and to cause them to doubt their own perceptions of things. Um, they're consistently always, consistently always, they're consistently undermining um, the person's thinking and their conclusions. And I have had husbands bring their wives to counseling for this very issue, okay? My wife is crazy. She's always thinking she's saying something and she's not really saying it. You know, I, I think she needs help because I'll tell her one thing and then she'll go do something else and then she'll come back and tell me that she did what I told her to do when that wasn't it at all, okay? He believes that the counselor is going to side with his assessment of the situation and confirm to his wife that she needs to change, that there's something wrong with her. And these guys often go to great lengths to portray themselves as morally superior in the relationship. And they're, of course, they're much more reasonable than their dim-witty wives. Abusive men exert control by name-calling, by put-downs, ridiculing, making humiliating, humiliating statements to them and about them. And the results of these devastating remarks can be relentless and leave her doubting her sanity and her capabilities. So many of the young women that we counsel that are married and, you know, even for three years, five years, seven years, to men that do these kinds of things, they really honestly do not believe that they can do anything. 
because their husbands have so effectively convinced them that they're dumb, they're useless, they don't know how to do anything. So Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And all of these things are included in this emotional abuse and intimidation. Other emotional manipulation methods include sulking and forcing the spouse to play the what's wrong guessing game. Okay, what's wrong? Nothing. Are you sure, honey? What's the matter? Nothing. Well, honey, it, it looks like something's wrong. I said nothing. Oh, yeah, right, nothing. These are the kind of tactics that keep the victim on alert. And they necessitate the spouse regularly taking the husband's kind of emotional temperature and then adjusting to try and keep the peace in the home. It's common for this kind of stuff to escalate into um, including things like blocking the way, leaving the room, what I talked about before, taking the car keys so she can't escape, taking their cell phone, restricting them from family and friends, Moving the family out into the country, away from everybody, where he can isolate her and keep her kind of his captive there. Um, giving the silent treatment, using the cold shoulder, locking her in a room, outside of a room, in the house, outside the house as a punishment. Abusive women manipulate uh, by using massive amounts of words to control their husbands. And women who abuse taunt their husband's masculinity. They, they emasculate him with words. They badger their husbands. They berate them and they demean them. And what we see is women that are abusive keep extensive records of their wrongs, of their alleged offenses. She can remember something that he did in 1998 in explicit detail. They bait their husbands, they mind read, and they assign meanings to his fictitious words. They read meaning into what he says, and then they accuse their husband of wrongdoing. So like we said, most of the time, these are things that our husband's doing to wives, but we have seen wives do this kind of stuff to their husbands as well. All right, the next thing on the pie plate is using isolation. She might reveal controlling behaviors such as isolation from friends and family. And the husband might not want his wife to spend time with her parents or siblings without him, but then he refuses to go with her to family events. Okay? Or he'll say, um, I don't want to go, but you can go ahead and go. All right, but she's learned by experience that if she goes without him, he's going to make her life miserable while she's gone because he's going to be calling and texting, when are you coming home? What are you doing? Why are you gone so long? How much longer is this going to go on? What are you guys saying over there? Are you talking about me? What are you saying about me over there? Are you telling people what's going on in our house? You had better hurry up and get home. I want you home in 45 minutes. And if you don't get home, you are going to get it so bad when you get home or he'll just bombard her with text messages, or he'll invent reasons for her to have to come home. 
earlier than the time that they previously agreed to. Now, men are not exclusive in this tactic either. Women also isolate their victims. Often an emotionally abused person, when it's a man, will confide to his counselor that their spouse doesn't want the attention on anybody else but them while they're home. Okay? You can't watch TV, you can't go bowling, you can't go out with a friend, you can't go snowmobiling, you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything that doesn't include me because I am supposed to be your whole world. And if I'm not your whole world, then you don't really love me. Okay, so this works in both directions. Uh, the abusive spouse might use silent treatment, act hurt or wounded, yell at their husband or wife, accuse their spouse of not loving them at all, or of being insensitive to their almighty needs. Okay, both spouses can attempt to manipulate with guilt um, and blame the other person for their loneliness or for feeling unloved. Now, it's not unusual for a man who abuses his wife to ah, um, have developed the habit of blaming other people and of making excuses for their behavior. And they speak into their hearts several rationalizations and justifications for these behaviors. They say things like, it's not that bad. Or I didn't actually hurt you. You're just exaggerating to get attention. One of the very common things that is said to women by the men that abuse them is, you know, if you wouldn't blank, then I wouldn't have to be this way. You are such a blank. It's your fault that I am the way that I am. So when the male counselor is meeting with the abuser, if he hears the husband consistently saying, well, she, well, she, well, she, okay, then we know that he's a blame shifter. If there's no willingness to take any responsibility for any behaviors, but everything is she, 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 okay, that's, we know. We know. All right, now, the abusive spouse may threaten to hurt the children to remind their spouse of their power and control. And this may include threats to take the kids. It may include using the children to relay messages to their victim, using the children as a means of guilt tripping, and using visitation and custody arrangements to harass their spouse or their ex-spouse. This is an unfortunate and way too common tactic of abuse. And what we know is a woman will remain in almost any situation, in any form of peril to protect her children, to protect them from harm, even if it means that she is hurt. Children become pawns of the abuser, and they're used to achieve his selfish ends. And because the court system does not always understand these dynamics, victims are often continue. Uh, continually harmed by their abuser even after legal matters are settled. Unfortunately, judges are often persuaded or fooled by narcissistic abusers who can appear so reasonable and so winsome in court. And you also have to keep in mind that the judge himself might be divorced. He might have an ax to grind against a woman claiming abuse. 
Court-ordered visitation can be an absolute nightmare for an abuse victim because she has to regularly engage with her abuser while she's exchanging the kids with him or interacting with him about visitations or play dates or school things because the parenting plans that are created often leave room for the parents to interact with each other regarding the kids. And this provides the abusive spouse a perfect avenue to continue to harass and intimidate and inflict pain on his wife. Sometimes kids are turned against their mom by the abusive father. I've got a situation like that right now that I'm dealing with where the husband is, the man is just evil. There's no, he's not a believer, never claimed to be, hates God. So when I say he's evil, I can say that with confidence. And he has turned systematically all the children against the mother. And you know, it's so unfair, you know, but these guys are good and they know what buttons to push. Using the kids is very effective. So another piece on the pie is male privilege. Husbands who abuse will frequently say the wife is disrespectful and unsubmissive. Abusers will take the biblical mandate to submit out of its biblical context and sinfully use their God-given authority as the leader in the home for personal gain and to exert power and control over their wives. Warren Lamb says that there is a disturbing correlation between the hyper-headship or hyper-patriarchy view of male headship and male leadership in the home and domestic oppression and domestic abuse there seems to be kind of this resurgence of hyper-headship and hyper-patriarchy in the Christian church. There are entire websites dedicated to it, and it's really kind of a backlash against what's happening in our culture where, you know, all men bad, right? And so there's like this whole subculture of Christianity that you need to be aware of, Christianity, um, where the hyper-headship is is the rule of the day. You know, the woman is not allowed to make any decisions. She's not allowed to ask any questions. She's not allowed to empty a box, hang a picture, buy a, a Slurpee from Quick Trip. She's not allowed to do anything without checking with her husband first. She has no authority over the children. She has no authority in the home other than what he explicitly tells her that he has given her. If she questions him about anything, she's considered to be disrespectful, and this is just evidence of her rebellion to her husband's authority and her leadership. And any suggestion that anything he's doing is unbiblical um, brings down just the wrath of the man, and he twists scripture then to um, show her that she is wrong. A husband who asserts male privilege may force his wife to participate in sinful activities like degrading sexual behaviors. He may force her to lie for him. And most importantly, he may insist that she keep things secret that are taking place inside the home because to do anything else is not obeying her husband. He might only allow her and the kids to get clothes from secondhand stores while he buys all his clothes from an expensive men's store. Perhaps she has a medical need that he won't pay for because he says they don't have the money. 
But then when she goes out to his car, she finds fast food bags and wrappers and, you know, receipts from the video store for the newest video game that he bought. Uh, but for her to question him about this is, in his mind, a lack of authority, uh, respect for his authority and de demonstrates again to him that she is just unsubmissive. Economic abuse is a, also a pretty common form of emotional abuse. This includes withholding money for needed medical care and even household management. He may even steal from her. He may sabotage her job by showing up there at her job. He may call her work constantly, wanting to talk to her to keep her on the phone with him instead of doing her job. When I say he steals from her, um, I've had some situations where women have been left money by family members, um, you know, and the family member could see what was going on or they suspected what was going on. So they put it in a trust that was only in the woman's name and the husband is enraged by this because we're married and you don't have any money of your own. It's our money, unless, unless it's my money we're talking about, then it's all my money. But when anything is your money, then it's our money and I should have access to this. So um, he, he will just badger her relentlessly to try and give him that money because his goal is to leave her unable to care for herself. He wants her completely dependent on him. Often women have no clue about the finances. They don't know, not only do they know how to get into the bank account, they don't even know where the bank account is. I've had women that have no clue who holds the mortgage on their home. They don't know if there's a loan on their car. They don't know if there's a loan on their home. They don't know about credit cards. They don't know how much money is in the checking account, the savings account. They know nothing. All they know is he gives them X number of dollars to spend for groceries, which is never enough, to buy clothes for the kids and her, which is never enough, and she has to account for every penny, and she is not allowed to be ungrateful. So financial abuse is really a very serious problem in many of these marriages because he wants to keep her completely dependent on himself and keep her um, unable to flee or to get any wild ideas about, um, you know, being independent. So using coercion and threats is a common tactic as well. He might threaten to hit her, knowing that she is completely at his mercy. He might threaten to leave her, knowing that she has nothing without him. She has no means to support herself or the children. And so she had better behave herself, because if she doesn't, then he's going to kick her out. Or he's going to leave. And then how is she going to pay the rent? How is she going to buy food? Because he has all of it. He holds all the cards. Another very common thing that a husband will do like this is he will threaten suicide. He uses the threat of suicide to keep her in line. And I, I've had situations where the husband tells, him, tells his wife, I might as well just go off and kill myself because you really don't love me. And, you know, then, oh, I love you, I love you, you know, don't go, please don't go, you know, stay here with me, I, I'll be better, I'll be better. No, 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 you won't. You're just such a failure. You can't love me the way that I need to be loved. So I just might as well go off and kill myself. So then he'll leave and he'll turn his phone off. Or he'll leave his phone in the car and he'll go for a walk in the mall. And 
she is left wondering, well, did he do it or didn't he? Is he coming home or isn't he? And what do I do now? I mean, some of these guys stay gone for days and leave this poor woman at home trying to figure out if I call the police and he's not dead and the police get involved, I am going to be in so much trouble when he comes home. But if I don't call the police, what if he really killed himself? And are they going to blame me? Did, did he tell somebody that it's my fault? Am I going to be in trouble? What's going to happen to my kids if I have to go to jail? Okay, so that's very common. Another common threat is uh, to report her as being an unfit mother. Okay. You know, you don't know how to keep this house clean. You don't know how to take care of these kids. Look at these kids. Look at them. Their faces are dirty. Look at, their, look at her hair. It's a mess. How come you're not combing? How come you're not doing it? How come you're not? How come you're not? You're such a failure. You're such a loser. You're an unfit mother. These kids are suffering with you, and I think I should just call Child Protective Services and have you removed. And if I do, you'll never see them again. Very effective at keeping her in line because she's terrified of the kids winding up alone with her husband. Now, if she manages to call the police on her husband, he's very good at forcing her to drop the charges. That's very common. And some husbands also force their wives to do illegal things like drug traffic, to lie for them, to even prostitute themselves for their husband, and to conceal their illegal activities. Because, well, you love me, don't you? I love you. We love each other. Let's just, let's just forget this, honey, and let's go on until tomorrow or later tonight when we do this all over again. So I think you can see that living this way is crazy-making. It's enough to make a person think they really are nuts, that there's no hope, that there's no escape. There's no way out of this. Every direction she tries to turn, he blocks. And he's very good at it. And they don't even have to practice. It's like this stuff comes naturally, which is sad and scary. Abuse is a fruit of a deceitful heart. All of these things, these external behaviors, these are fruit. These are evidences of a sinful and deceitful heart. Luke 6, 43 through 45 says, There is no good tree that bears bad fruit. Or on the other hand, there is no bad tree that produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men don't gather figs from thorns and they don't pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. His actions flow from that which fills his heart. Abusive men want to deny things are as serious as the wife claims they are. He may admit to various behaviors, but he minimizes them and he adamantly denies that he is an abusive husband. Often he'll turn the tables and say that he is a victim of the wife. 
He paints himself as the most reasonable, invested person in the marriage as compared to her. Now, we use this diagram um, with both the abuser and the victim to illustrate their abusive behavior. Okay, so as she is sitting with me and telling me all the things that are going on and as I'm going through those 51 questions with her on the ARI, I have one of these laminated in my office and then a dry erase marker and I'm writing on there and all the little fruit, all the different things that he is doing, okay? And I want her to see that, yep, these things up here are problems, but they're not the problem, these are evidences of the real problem, which is a heart that is focused on worshiping self. It's vital as you engage in the counseling process that you don't just pick the fruit off the tree. Many, 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 many times the couple is put into marriage counseling with all of these kinds of issues in play because the pastor or the counselor wants to address communication. Oh, these are communication issues. Oh, we have some financial issues here. Or maybe she just doesn't know how to submit. Or maybe he doesn't know how to lead. Because they're thinking that these are the proper avenues to help the couple. The helper thinks if I can just get them to address whatever fruit issues are present, that's going to solve the problem. But it won't. It will not solve the problem. Because abuse is the issue. It's, it's an issue of the heart. And the abusive spouse must address those issues if there is going to be repentance and change. And it is extremely unwise to enter into any kind of marital or relationship counseling before both people have had individual counseling for repentance and change. Okay, the roadmap that Bill and I devised is recognition, repentance, reconciliation, and reunification. Okay, and they, those things need to happen in order. And it's, it's not, it's very similar to how that cycle of abuse isn't formulaic. Okay, the roadmap also isn't formulaic, right? Because you know, there's no guarantee that if someone recognizes their sin that they're going to repent. And there's no guarantee that if they recognize their sin that there's going to be reunification or reconciliation. Right? We have couples that get stuck all the time on repentance. Okay? And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Uh, but repentance is, is really the key to everything. You can't repent of what you don't recognize. Right? And you have to be willing to see sin problems. Both parties must experience change of heart because she has learned to accommodate her spouse's sinful behavior and she has to learn new and biblical ways of responding to him. And these changes also take time because she is conditioned. She is conditioned in how to respond to him. Now Stephen's going to address this more um, tomorrow, and I'm going to address this more in the lesson that we have on the heart of abuse. <coughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm presenting these things to you here tonight just to kind of whet your appetite a little bit and get you started thinking on where we're going from here. Yeah, question. You were 
Yes, um, recognition, repentance, reconciliation, and reunification. You're welcome. <laughs>